All right, if you want to find your way back to your seats, we are going to be in the book of Hosea this morning. Uh, we are in the midst of the Thread Sermon Series, and we are in the prophet Hosea today. So uh, one sermon from every book of the Bible uh, sure makes it easy to prep, let me tell you. Um, uh, just as a reminder, as we go through the Old Testament books of the prophets, uh, we're going to be doing them chronologically, not canonically. So not in the order that they're in your Bibles, but actually the order that they happen. So we're looking, first Jonah, Amos, and Hosea are kind of prophets to the northern kingdom of Israel during Jeroboam II's reign, and I know you guys are all excited about that. So um, let's pray and ask God to, to speak to us through his word. God, um, here we are again, uh, some of us for the thousandth time, some of us for the first time, and we need to hear from you. God, as I look out in the room, I know that people don't need to hear from me, they need to hear from you, and so would you speak to us? God, as we've been journeying through this sermon series, I, I got to be honest, there's still a lot rolling around in my heart from last week in the book of Amos that I have yet to apply. Lord, would you make us not only hearers of your word, but doers of your word? Would you open our eyes to the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, even in the Old Testament here as it points to him? Holy Spirit, would you speak through me or in spite of me, but would you speak to every single person I ask? In the powerful name of Jesus, amen. If I were to share with you the phrase spiritual adultery, what comes to your mind when you think about that? Such a powerful and, and pungent phrase, isn't it? And yet that's the primary theme of the book of Hosea. Here's a brief one-minute introduction video that'll give us an overview of the whole thing. The book of Hosea was written by Hosea between 755 and 725 BC. He was called to prophesy to the northern kingdom of Israel. To demonstrate the depth of Israel's unfaithfulness God calls the prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute named Gomer. Even after bearing three children, Gomer continues to pursue other lovers in the city, forsaking her husband and his provision. In spite of this, God tells Hosea to find her, pay her debts, and uphold his commitment to faithfully love her. Through the pain and resilience of Hosea and Gomer's marriage, God symbolizes the story of his own relationship with Israel. He faithfully protects and provides but in return, Israel forsakes God's love for their own selfish will. Because of the nation's sin, Hosea joins in the pattern of other biblical prophets, warning Israel of the coming consequences of their actions. Yet God remains faithful, continuing to pursue his wayward, adulterous people with love and mercy. So many people in the Bible were called to do hard things, weren't they? Moses was called to confront Pharaoh and to tell him to let God's people go. David was to confront a giant that under ordinary circumstances would have killed him on the spot. And yet, Hosea's calling is utterly unique and incredibly painful, isn't it? What do you think it would have been like to be Hosea? You're a prophet of God, and God tells you to marry a woman that you know full well is going to be unfaithful to you. Why in the world would God do this? Well, let's look into the book and find out. Hosea chapter 1, the first three verses. 
The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take for yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. A couple things to note before moving on. Hosea's ministry is once again during the long reign of Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom of Israel, just as Amos and and Jonah were. He's told not only to deliver a message calling out the spiritual unfaithfulness of Israel, but his life is actually meant to be a prophetic reenactment of just what Israel was doing to their God, Yahweh. Now, why would God do this to a man who, by all accounts, was faithful to him? We're not given any explanation at all. Just that God told him to do this, and he did, and he obeyed. Isn't it amazing how much harder the message of Hosea hits when we feel the emotions of a husband living out the very pain that God experienced himself with his people? Do you remember a few weeks ago we looked at the book, The Song of Songs? You guys remember that one, right? It got a little awkward in here as we looked at this erotic Hebrew love poetry. And in it, we saw how marital intimacy teaches us something about the kind of relationship that God longs to have with his people, and that there's something about a healthy marriage, including sexual love and intimacy, that points to a deeper, intimate relationship that Jesus has with his bride, the church. In many ways, the book of Hosea shows us the exact opposite side of things. There's something about a broken relationship A broken and adulterous marriage that helps us to understand two very profound truths. The first is this. Sin is an absolute betrayal of God who is faithful. Sin is likened to spiritual adultery, cheating on God, as it were, by worshiping other things than our true creator. And the second thing is God's heart toward his sinful people both in passionately hating their sin and rebellion and adultery, adultery, and yet his profound love and forgiveness that continues to pursue and move toward his bride despite their betrayal. So God tells Hosea, take a wife of whoredom, take a wife of infidelity, and and Hosea obeys and marries Gomer a wife that he knows will be unfaithful to him, and they start having kids. Now, most scholars agree that a woman, a wife of whoredom means a woman who will be unfaithful to him, not necessarily someone who already is a prostitute. We don't know that, but we do know that she is going to continue to be unfaithful to him. Now, one more thing before we move on. The word whore is a pretty loaded word, isn't it? In many ways, it's a crass word. It's a word that speaks to the depth of betrayal and hurt in adultery. But it's also a word that's kind of taken on more meaning in our current world to the point where I'm not actually sure it's the best translation to use of what's going on here. From what I can tell, the Hebrew word has the general sense of anyone who is sexually unfaithful, from an adulterer to a prostitute to someone who's filled with sexual lust in an ungodly way. I bring that up because I would say it's not really a word that we should use in our regular vocabulary. 
Full stop. Especially when we speak of other people. As human beings, we are incredibly complex and broken. And sexual addictions, often found in people that we would use this label for, are almost always a response to deep pain and trauma that we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of. So using that label of other people is unhelpful at best and cruel at worst, and yet here it's used in the scriptures to communicate the depth of betrayal that God feels about his people. Now back to the story, verse 3. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So Gomer bears three children, and they are given rather odd names, right? Again, this is prophetic reenactment and fulfillment in the life of a prophet of God. Now, we know that the first child is Hosea's, but the next two are intentionally vague and seem to imply, both with the names and other things, that they are not his children at all, but the result of Gomer sleeping around. And so child number one is named Jezreel. It's a great name, isn't it? I mean, some of you guys might pick it for a son that you might have. Jezreel means in Hebrew that God will sow or God will replant, which is important later in the story, as it will be the promise of God to re-sow the land. But Jezreel, in their understanding, was a place synonymous with God's judgment. It's where King Jehu killed and and executed God's judgment on the wicked queen Jezebel and her husband Ahab. If you remember the stories of Elijah and Elisha, they were the wicked king and queen that reigned in northern Israel during Elijah and Elisha's time. He also, Jehu, killed all of Ahab's descendants there and seized the throne for himself so that he and his line would be the new kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. And get this, King Jehu, who's referred here, is the great-grandfather of Jeroboam II. And so the reason that Jeroboam II is sitting on the throne that he has is because of what his great-grandfather Jehu did to Ahab and to Jezebel in the region of Jezreel. And so God is saying through the name of this child, I remember what happened at Jezreel, and I will bring judgment for those actions soon on the house of Jehu, which, by the way, that's your great-granddad. Jeroboam II. Now, child number two is a daughter named Lo Ruhamah, which means in Hebrew, no mercy. Now, could you imagine having your first little baby girl and going around to everybody, have you met my cute daughter? Her name is No Mercy. Or No More Loved. Imagine being named No Mercy or No Love. And what it meant by this is that God will no longer have mercy on the northern kingdom of Israel as he's continued to have, even though they've rebelled against him. But he says he will have mercy on Judah, which is the southern kingdom, those who are loyal to David and the Davidic throne. He will deliver them, but not by typical means. 
That's the references to the bows and the horses and the implements of war. Now, this very thing happened during the reign of King Hezekiah in Judah. It's an incredible miracle that you can read about in three different places in the Scripture. In Isaiah 36 to 39, tells the story. In 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles, we read about God's miraculous deliverance of the city of Jerusalem under King Hezekiah when the Assyrian army came and after wiping out the northern kingdom of Israel, seeks to sack the city of Jerusalem. God delivers them, but not by military means. He sends a plague into their camp so that 100,000 soldiers die at one particular moment. So child number two is named no mercy because Israel no longer gets the mercy of God, but Judah will. Now, child number three, a son named Lo-Ami, which in Hebrew means not my people. Now, if you think the name no mercy was bad, what about not my people or not my son? Imagine having a son and saying, he's not mine. This is a complete and utter rejection of the northern kingdom of Israel as they start a downward spiral. Even though they seem outwardly prosperous, Jeroboam II is going to be killed, and then over and over and over there are a bunch of assassinations and a new dynasty and a new dynasty, sometimes lasting even months until Assyria comes and wipes them out utterly. Now, this is not a very happy story, is it? No mercy, not my people, Jezreel, God will bring down his judgment. And yet, even in this bleak spot in Israel's history, there is a glimmer of hope in verses 10 and 11. Hosea explains, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where, God, where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. What's going on here? Even though northern Israel was called not my people, God is promising that one day you will be restored and called children of the living God. So from not my people to now my son, my child, And verse 11 points to a day when the two kingdoms will once again be united, and that will be a day called Jezreel, or the day where God sows or replants his people in the land. Do you see all the different wording and how it fits together? So that's the 10,000-foot view of Hosea's story. He marries Gomer, they have a kid who gets a weird symbolic name, Jezreel, indicating God's judgment on Jehu's line, but also a promise to replant them in the land. She cheats on him repeatedly, and they have two more kids of questionable parenthood, the result of adultery, and they too receive symbolic names of no mercy and not my people. But even then, God is going to reverse that someday. What's strangely absent from the story in chapter 1 is the emotion of it. It simply tells the story. This happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And yet, can you imagine what it would have been like to live that out in real time? To be in a broken marriage, to have a child that you know is not yours? To give them a name, no mercy, or a name, not my son, not my child, not my people. It's gut-wrenching, isn't it? It's heart-rending. That's where chapter 2 comes in. The voice in chapter 2 changes from God speaking about Hosea to God speaking to his people through Hosea's voice and situation. Now, warning, chapter 2 is incredibly graphic. 
It's dripping with emotion and anger because it is the lament and cries of a husband whose wife has cheated on him and had children that are not his. It's filled with anger and hurt, but it's also filled with love. It's poetry that grasps and grapples with the emotions of what one must feel and in turn shows us what God feels toward his people. It it divides pretty neatly into two sections. The first section, verses 1 to 13, contains the anger and the hurt of a husband cheated on. And verses 14 to 23 is the husband's promise of restoration, reconciliation, and hope even for his cheating wife. I'll read each section at a time and then we'll go from there. Sound good? It's addressed from father to children as God speaks to his people through the voice and situation of Hosea. Chapter 2, verse 1, say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Here, Hosea is speaking to his children, and often in a broken marriage, it is the children that all of the ramifications fall on the most, isn't it? He says, even though he's given the name of no mercy and not my people to his children, he says, say to them, you are my people, and you have received mercy. Verse 2, plead with your mother, plead For she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face, and her adultery from between her breasts. Lest I strip strip her naked, and make her as in the day she was born. And make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore, she has conceived them, and has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge her up, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me than now. And she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. I will put an end for all... To all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord." Welcome to church, everybody. Here we are reading 2,700 years later this poetry dripping with anger and emotion and hurt of a husband who has been cheated on, a God who has been cheated on by his people. Do you feel it? It's a tragic situation. Poetry is meant for us to feel it. And yet, if we're honest, we are the unfaithful spouse. We are the one who walk away from God all of the time. God compares his wife Israel to one who kisses another man after receiving flowers from her husband. 
The irony and the tragedy of the story is that the very thing she is seeking from her lovers, protection, provision, attention, is the very thing her husband has already given her. God is saying to his people, what you have sought from your idols, Baal, Asherah, Molech, I have been the one providing for you all along. But so that you will see that it has been me, I'm going to take them away. I'm going to remove your prosperity. I'm going to remove your safety. You will experience the full brunt of my judgment. See, in these verses, we see the jealous heart of God, like a husband who loves his wife and is unwilling to share her with other men. And if you miss much of the story, don't miss this powerful truth, this clear truth. Our sin is grievous to the Lord. It is spiritual adultery. It is cheating on God. The story of Hosea is a gut-level check for all of us as to what sin really is. See, in the garden, you have God providing everything that humanity could possibly need. The Garden of Eden. And there they have intimacy between human beings and their God as Adam and Eve are described as being naked and unashamed. They walk with God in the cool of the day, but their response to all of the goodness that God has provided is to listen to the voice of another. They, cho they choose to think of God as stingy, and in order for them to be truly happy, they need to determine right and wrong for themselves. So they take what God has forbidden in his love, and all hell breaks loose, doesn't it? This is our story. This is the story of every human being since the garden. And then again, later in the story, God rescues his people from Egypt and calls them to a new way of life. He enters into a covenant relationship with them to care for them, to provide for them, to love them. He brings them to a land that is flowing with provision and says, I want you to obey me and reflect who I am to a watching world so that all of the other nations of the earth will be blessed. But over and over again, they are unfaithful to him like a cheating spouse. This is a really hard reality to consider, but if you are in an unfaithful marriage, or if you've ever been cheated on by a significant other, you have a gut-level understanding of how God feels toward you when you sin and betray him. Just as a sweet marriage can point you to the deeper reality of what relationship with God is supposed to be like, so a broken relationship can help you understand not only God's hurt over your sin, but as we'll see in the rest of the story, his scandalous mercy and grace to forgive your sin and continue to pursue you. It's amazing. Now, before we move on, can we just have a little family chat? The last two and a half years have not been easy by any metric or stretch of anyone's imagination. I know that that has come at a real cost to many relationships and marriages. I bring that up because the reality is you do not make yourself righteous by having a perfect marriage. In fact, there are a lot of marriages in our church family right now that are struggling and just need some help. And I just want to let you know, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay not okay. Okay? There's no shame in having a marriage that, that needs a little help. You just need to say something. And we're here for you. We want to help. Maybe take a step and share with a pastor, hey, we need some help. Or maybe if you don't want to do that, maybe just mention to your city group leader or someone that you trust, hey, we're really struggling here. As a church, I just, there's been a number of challenging relationships, and I just want to, I just want to break the sound barrier on that. 
that marriage can be really hard. It's taking two sinful people and putting them in really close proximity with one another as they work out what sanctification looks like. And sometimes sparks fly. I want you to know it's, it's okay to not be okay and to ask for help. It's not okay to stay in that spot where it's utterly broken and just remain silent thinking it'll get better by doing the exact same thing. Okay? I just want to throw that out there. All right, back to the story. In verse 14, the entire tone of the, of the poetry changes. After having expressed his anger and hurt and betrayal, God speaks to his people words of love and restoration. Let me read for you. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and she shall be remembered, er, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the creeping things of the ground. That's referring back to that creation covenant that God made with Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy, the very character of God, right? I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. God says to his people, despite their deepest betrayals, I will win you back. I will allure you and romance you, as it were, and draw you back. Not only that, but God will make a new covenant with his people. Like renewing his vows, he will betroth us to him forever in righteousness and justice in steadfast love and mercy because that's who he is and that's who we are to reflect as our God in faithfulness despite our unfaithfulness and you shall know the Lord, it's promised. And then the names of the children of Hosea explode with new meaning. Jezreel, which means God will sow or replant. We read, the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land. You see, this word of judgment now becomes a word of hope. And I will say, and I will have mercy on the one who is named no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And you will say, you are my God. Brothers and sisters, is this not the promised hope of the gospel message? Where God renews his work in our hearts. He sows the seed of his word into the soil of our hearts. He has mercy on those who do not deserve mercy. Those who have committed spiritual adultery against him. And he restores and names his people my people. 
Those who are not a people, he makes a people. Is this not the great mystery of the gospel revealed in the New Testament, of which Paul says, I am a declarer of this mystery? In Ephesians chapter 2, we read this, don't you forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. And so we read, this is not just for the rebellious Jewish people being brought to be his people, but now for the Gentiles who have been excluded and are far away, they are brought near. You who are called the uncircumcised heathens by the Jews, who are proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. He's speaking to the Gentiles. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. You did not know the covenant promises God made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. He is describing our spiritual condition apart from him. He is saying to the Gentiles, this is where you were. And as I look at this room, the majority of us in this room are Gentiles. So praise be to God that he's going to do something about it. But now, you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. Thanks be to God for his great salvation that not only restores his people, but also draws in an entirely new people among whom we are named. Now, If this is where the story of Hosea and Gomer ended, it would be hopeful, but still broken. But God has Hosea live out the reality of redemption and restoration, not just betrayal. Chapter 3 is only five words, and it concludes their story as a couple. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to the other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer, a leteth of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So, I also, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel will dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the later days. Hosea goes out and he redeems his wife. He finds Gomer in the squalor, cheating on him yet again, used up and discarded, and he pays the bride price for her again. He returns her to his home. He redeems her and restores her to a position as his wife. Now, scholars differ on what exactly the arrangement was in chapter 3, but it says, you will not cheat on me, and you will refrain from a typical husband-wife relationship for a while, is how most Bible scholars interpret that. Because verses 4 and 5 tell us what that means prophetically as Hosea is acting this out, what God is going to do. There will be a season where Israel will not have the security of normal relationship with God like they once had with kings and priests and sacrifices. But there is a time when they will be restored and united with Judah under a Davidic king. That's verse 5, the Messiah. And that day they will once again fear the Lord and experience his goodness. In the same way, there will be a season of awkwardness for Hosea and Gomer, but ultimately restoration as redeeming love wins out. Because this, of course, is God's heart for his wayward people, you and me. So what do we do 
with this Old Testament book of prophecy. There's some differences between us and the northern kingdom of Israel, right? So what does it possibly teach us today? Three things. And if you don't see anything else, get the first one. Please see God's heart for his people. God's heart of redeeming love. God loves us like the perfect husband. Jealous, yes. Protective, yes. But fully and willing to extend mercy and grace to us. He is angry at our sin, and yet he continues to pursue us in our waywardness. Notice that Gomer is not seeking a way back. She is still in the squalor, and at that moment, Hosea seeks her out and buys her back and restores her. In the same way, on our worst day, Jesus dies for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 7 says that in this, God has showed his love for us in this, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That means that the, the, the message of good news is not that you clean yourself up and you work your way back. The good news is that God pursues you in the squalor. God pursues you in your sin, in the worst. And in that moment, Jesus dies for you. Not because you deserve it, but because of his heart of grace and mercy toward you. Second, it helps us to reflect on sin as being spiritual adultery and helps us to understand the heart of God toward us in a unique way. Now, most people would never argue that a broken marriage is a spiritual advantage, and I wouldn't either. It isn't really. But there is something about a broken marriage that can help you understand spiritual truth in a unique way. The uniqueness of the suffering of of suffering the fallout of a wayward spouse can help you to know God's heart toward you. In a way, you understand God in a way that people with healthy marriages haven't even scratched the surface. And while you would never certainly choose that path, there is a sense in which God's grace meets you in the uniqueness of your suffering and fills in the gaps so that you know him uniquely. And in that moment, as God fills in the gaps in your heart profoundly, you know him as a friend of sinners and sufferers. Painful but profound, God is near to the brokenhearted. Just as beautiful and good marriages image God, so broken marriages can image something of the heart of God to us as well. And none of us are signing up for that one. But if that's the path that you are currently walking, know the heart of God for you. Now, let me also just say a little caveat. The book of Hosea does not put a mandate on spouses to always make it work in marriage regardless of the sin involved. It is not a marriage manual for us, but rather a prophetic reenactment of what God was feeling toward his people. We stray beyond the intent of Hosea if we turn it into a mandate toward the most offended party in a broken marriage. Well, there's always hope for reconciliation, And while God's posture toward us is one of reconciliation, in the context of broken human marriages, it is far more complex than simply A plus B equals C. And the book of Hosea certainly doesn't heap on the brokenhearted an additional burden. Okay? So don't use the Bible that way. That's not how it's intended to be used. Shows us the hope of reconciliation, but not the mandate on the offended party. Third, 
the book of Hosea last is an object lesson in the futility of idolatry. Do, do you see the irony in Gomer's life? She's seeking what she already has. The very thing that Gomer seeks from her lovers is the exact thing that her husband has already provided for her. In the same way, the things that the people of God in the northern kingdom of Israel are seeking from the Baals and the Asherahs and is what God has already richly provided for them. Now, you might think, well, we don't bow down to idols of wood and stone and gold. But really, idolatry hasn't changed all that much. It promises what it can't deliver. We run to our idols thinking that in them they'll finally make us happy, not realizing that the whole time we're actually seeking God and what he can provide. We don't worship at shrines for Baal or Asherah or Molech, but we still worship the shrines of sex and financial security and pleasures. They just have different faces, don't they? Every time we buy something, thinking that this will finally make me happy and fulfilled, we're worshiping something other than the Lord. Every time we take a good gift of God, like sex or drink or food, and indulge in it outside of God's given boundaries, we are taking a good created gift and trying to make it more. And we are worshiping something false. Every time we think that our security and our safety is found in our bank account or found in who gets elected or found in an insurance policy or found in what other people have to say about us, we are bowing down to different idols than gold or silver or stone, but idols nonetheless. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says this in his letter to the Christians in chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here we see once again that the brokenness in our life comes not from too strong of desires, but rather strong desires that are misplaced and things that cannot bear them. There is a war going on within our soul, and we either make peace with our broken worldly desires and declare God to be our enemy, or we make peace with God and declare those things to be not fulfilling. When we make peace with the broken desires in our soul, we commit spiritual adultery, and God yearns jealously over us. Do you see the language is the same here? But notice how the words in James 4 don't end in condemnation, but rather a promise. A promise that, that God is jealous toward the spirit that is now living in us, which is a game changer between us and the Old Testament saints. A new spirit, a new power that allows us to live out of the new desire to, to obey him and to love him, to find our satisfaction in him and in him alone. But it ends in James 4 with a promise that even though this war is going on, 
But he gives what? Tells us he gives more grace in verse 6. Oh, what good news that is. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so the prescription is clear that we ought to humble ourselves and receive the grace of God. We ought to lean into the new power at work within us so that we actually live out of new desires because what we really want is him and nothing on earth can satisfy that apart from him. So here's, here's something really practical. The next time that you are tempted to run after an idol, ask yourself, is this really what I want? Now I know in the midst of sin, in the midst of idolatry, our, our minds get fuzzy and, and we, we become idiots. And yet ask us, when we're, when we're going to do something that we know we shouldn't do, will running after this actually give me what I want? Actually give me what I'm desiring right now? And the answer in a clear-headed way is absolutely not. It won't. It's a deceiver. It's a counterfeit. What you really want is God, which leads to the other question. What will give me what I want? God will. I was created for him, and I need to find my rest in him. The longing I have is for a relationship with him, and that's what he offers us in the gospel. See, that, my friends, leads you back to God, the joy giver, the faithful husband, the forgiving pursuer of our souls. Let's humble ourselves and submit ourselves to him. Turn back and receive his mercy and his grace afresh. Let's pray. God, thank you for the book of Hosea and how it speaks into our lives even all these years later. I pray that we would see your grace and your mercy and we would stand in awe as worshipers. God, protect us from from running after things that deceive us that promise what they can't possibly deliver. Lord, I pray that we would um, see your heart toward us and receive your grace again. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna turn in our service now to the communion table, which reminds us of the good news of the gospel. Just like eating and drinking does something to us physically, it nourishes, it strengthens us, so the act of remembering Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed for us has a way of nourishing and encouraging our faith. And so when we gather together that we might not forget the good news of the gospel, that we might not turn it into man-made religion, Jesus gives us something to remind us over and over and over. He says, when you eat this bread, think of my body broken for you. When you dip it in the cup or you drink of this cup, Remember my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Remember that relationship with me is not on the basis of your performance, but on the basis of what Jesus has done for you. This idea of spiritual adultery, wedding, marriage, is all throughout the scriptures. And it teaches us of the relationship that we're to have with God, with Jesus. So much so that the, as we look forward to heaven, it is described for us as the wedding supper of the Lamb. Why do I bring that up now? Because this communion meal kind of sits in the, in the in-between time between when Jesus spoke his vows for us, when his body was broken and his blood was shed as a sacrifice, a substitute for our sins, and that future event in, the, in heaven which is described as the wedding supper or banquet 
of the Lamb. That's wedding language. And so Jesus tells us when we eat this, we are to look back at what he has done, and we are to look forward with anticipation into what he will do. And so church, would you be blessed by this? Meaning if you have put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are welcome at this table to remember his body and remember his blood for you. Be nourished and encouraged by that. And also to look forward to the day when you get to eat it again with him in the party that will end all parties. If you're here this morning, if you've never put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, I just want to let you know that I'm really glad you're here. This place is a safe place for you to wrestle through doubts and see what Christianity is all about. And if you're in a spot this morning where you realize, I need Jesus to save me, then my invitation to you is to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to receive by grace what he has accomplished for you. And if that's you, you are welcome to come and participate in the communion meal in faith for the first time in your life. However, if you're here and you're just not at that point, I just want to say, I'm glad you're here, but please don't participate in something that isn't true about your life. You have room and you can process through those things and continue to engage those questions and doubts but please don't participate unless it's actually real in your life. Let me pray. God, thank you for this great meal that reminds us of these beautiful truths. Would you nourish and encourage our faith as we eat and drink? In Jesus' name, amen. Would you come down the center aisle, grab a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and return down the side aisle as we sing? There'll be a gluten-free station here in the middle as well, but would you come?